This episode of Punk Rock HR is sponsored by the Shift Career Summit on June 17th. We're bringing together some of the biggest names in the world of work to help you take control of your career. The event is completely free and you can register today at shiftdigitalcareers.com. Hey everybody, I'm Lori Rudiman. Welcome to Punk Rock HR. My guest today is Dr. Jeffrey McCausland. Dr. McCausland is a retired colonel from the U.S. Army and the former dean of academics at the U.S. Army War College. Not your traditional guest on Punk Rock HR. He's here today because he's the author of a book called Battle Tested, Gettysburg Leadership Lessons for 21st Century Leaders. I love this book because there's so much to be learned from American history. What went right? What went wrong? And come on, Gettysburg, one of the most important moments in my nation's history. So if you're an American history buff or you're just really passionate about leadership, I invite you to sit back and enjoy this conversation with Dr. Jeffrey McCausland. Hey, Jeff, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Lori, it's delightful to be with you. Well, I'm so pleased to have you here. You know, before we get started, why don't you tell everybody who you are and what you're all about? Well, I'm a retired military officer, spent about 30 years in the United States Army, commanded the battalion during the Gulf War, also spent time teaching at West Point uh, and also working in the Pentagon and the White House. Subsequently, was the Dean of Academics at the Army War College. And since I retired from the Army about 20 years ago, I've been involved in teaching leadership at several major universities, Penn State University, Dickinson College, Dickinson School of law and working with major corporate groups all across the United States in the area of leadership development for corporate leaders, trying to use what we think is effective historical case studies to talk about enduring leadership principles, which we think endure no matter what time period you're talking about. And that, in essence, what this book, Battle Tested, is about. And I also, for the last about 15 years, have worked for CBS Radio and TV as a national security consultant. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your book and some of the major lessons that you'd like us to know? Well, the book began with a project when I was at the Army War College, really, and that there developed senior leaders for the U.S. military, major departments, Department of State, Department of Defense. And what we try to do is help these people transition from being what I would call leaders at the organizational level to being leaders at the strategic level. Uh, at the onset of that year, we would always take them down to Gaysburg. It's only about 30 miles south of where the War College is for what is a traditional military staff ride to use this particular historical experience, talk about military tactics, strategy and leadership, but tactics and operations. And having done that a number of times, it occurred to me, this is really an enormous case study about leadership and leaders in a very, very difficult circumstance. Now, Laura, if you and I went to any organization and we got to spend a couple of days and ask anybody, we wanted questions and delve into the organization, we could walk away, I think, and tell how well or poorly that organization was run. But if we were there when it was in a real difficult moment, a crisis was going on, good leadership and bad leadership would stick out. And that's really what a battle is. It's a crisis for two organizations. Time is compressed and then good leadership and bad leadership sticks out. And that's what we try to use using this case study of Gettysburg. So as we talk about the battle in the book, we'll take the reader through it chronologically, and then we'll pause at certain moments and ask them for their analysis of making a leadership decision, which a leader had to do. These aren't military tactics. We're not testing their historical acumen. I don't care if they know what the person actually did. This is more to test their intellectual ability to analyze a problem as a leader. We'll tell them what the person did, and then we'll use that anecdote as well 
well to talk about other principles that that illustrates, which again, we think are enduring. You know, not everybody who listens to the podcast is from North America, and not everybody is a student of American history. So before we get started talking about the book and some of the lessons, can you tell us just very briefly, and I know this is probably a ridiculous question, what Gettysburg is? Gettysburg, I would argue, is one of those iconic moments in American history. In terms of battles, if you're into military history, we Americans have been involved in a lot. Okay, we've won some, we've lost some. But there are really two battles in which the entire fate of the nation hangs in the balance on a particular afternoon. And the first one is the Battle of Yorktown. You don't win at the Battle of Yorktown, we can still be British citizens to this very day. Battle of Gettysburg is this iconic battle, almost at the midpoint of the American Civil War, which has been going on at that point for two years. This is going to determine whether this remains a united country or two countries. In fact, may also determine whether democracy works as a system. And Robert E. Lee has invaded the North. He has brought his army of Northern Virginia to threaten Washington, D.C., and hopefully force the North, the federal government, to sue for peace and allow the Confederacy to become an independent country. And this battle is contested across three days. It is the largest battle ever fought on the North American continent. And it all comes down to the afternoon of the 3rd of July, 1863. At that point, the South had been tactically somewhat successful, but had not scored a major victory. And they launched one final assault called Pickett's Charge to break through, defeat the Union Army, and win a victory. And obviously, the attack fails. Robert E. Lee retreats, unfortunately, is able to retreat back to Northern Virginia. This is all summarized in a fantastic strategic way about five months later, when Abraham Lincoln will arrive in the cemetery at Gettysburg on the 19th of November, 1863, and deliver the Gettysburg Address. The only speech I know of that has been translated into about every language I can think of. We have monuments to people and events. It's the only one I know we've got monuments to a speech. So you take this iconic battle and the lessons from the battle and you apply it to leadership in the corporate world. So you bring these corporate guests, these students, these leaders to Gettysburg and take them through the battle and then do case studies with them and scenarios where you put them in their shoes. And the book emerges from that. So tell us about some of the major lessons in the book. Okay. The begin with is the battle really begins because of the decision by a one-star general. His name is John Buford. He's a cavalry commander on the Union side. He will arrive in Gettysburg on the afternoon of the 30th of June. And he positions his cavalry on the western side of the city on a ridgeline. He knows the Confederates are advancing on the city in force. He has had scouts out. He can see them coming. The main body of the Union Army is about a day's march away. But he determines that A, there's the enemy, and B, this is the most important terrain that I've got to preserve. So he decides without any guidance and no radios, of course, in those days to position his troops on that particular ridge line because he's going to try to trade space for time. That night, he will send about a three sentence note to his boss, his corporate CEO. And it says the following. I have arrived in Gaysburg. The enemy is to the west of town in force. I have positioned my troops on the western part of the city. Get the infantry up here first thing in the morning. This to me is a classic example of how we try to develop an individual to lead the boss. And smart bosses like to be led. Okay, and we need to create a climate as leaders whereby we can be led and people provide us the information we need so we can make choice. Now, at that moment, his boss, a three-star general, General Reynolds, could have sent uh, good old Buford a message and said, you know, I'll tell you what, why don't you come back here? We're going to appoint a committee. We'll have a couple committee meetings. We'll link arms, and then we'll figure out what the heck we're going to do. No, no, no. This leader and his subordinate, Buford, they have done what I would call the intellectual Vulcan mind meld. And when Reynolds gets that message, he says, if Buford thinks that's what we should do, that's what we should do. Everybody accelerate your pace to get to Gettysburg. That's what we call initiative. Yeah, 
it's understatement that it's initiative. Yeah. Now we could have a meeting, Lori. You could bring in a hundred CEOs into a conference room and we could say to them, how many of you are opposed to initiative? Let's see a show of hands. And I dare say we would not see a single hand rise. But then we would say, how do you create a climate that allows people to have initiative? The way you do that is you've got to accept a certain degree of risk. As you encourage people to make choice, it won't always work. And if you then take them off at the head for making a mistake or things not going well, well, obviously they're not going to show a lot of initiative in the future. And guess what? Everybody else in the organization is going to watch what just happened and say, you know, in truth, initiative is not something we really encourage people in this organization to follow. So creating a climate of initiative and then also important parts of that is understanding that you have to make decisions quickly. Of all the resources leaders manage, we talk about money, we talk about people, we talk about capital items, but I would argue perhaps the most precious resource a senior leader manages is time and it's the most inelastic. And when I make a decision can oftentimes be more important than the actual decision I took because if I keep delaying choice because I continue to want to analyze, well, guess what? Options start to disappear. A very famous 20th century fighter pilot by the name of John Boyd used to train fighter pilots we talk about in the book. He uh, created a concept called the OODA loop, observe, orient, decide, and act. And he said, in training fire pilots, I told them, here's what you have to do. You have to observe the environment in which you are flying. You have to orient on what's the critical thing going on in that broader environment. You have to make decisions on that particular critical item, and you have to make that action more quickly than your competition, your opponent. And if you do that, you have a higher probability of success. Well, the same applies to a corporate organization. Every day, the CEO, what's the environment in which my corporation is operating in? What's the critical thing that's changing in that environment? Are we making decisions against that? And are we making those decisions more quickly than our competition? And if we do that, then we have a higher probability of success. Well, you know, the Gettysburg battle was a time-limited event. And one of the things that strikes me about many corporate leaders is that they're on constant war footing. And as we've seen in Afghanistan and Iraq, you know, the military gets tired, people feel depleted, but organizations also get tired and feel depleted. So I wonder if there are leaders out there who love this corollary to the military, love the battle, but get a little caught up in it and constantly set their organizations out to be exhausted, to be depleted. What are your thoughts on that? Well, you got to understand one thing. The Civil War lasts four plus years. This is a marathon. This ain't the 100-yard dash. And you can run your people into the ground. And there are several examples where leaders make choices to do things or not do things based on an assessment of the situation and assessment of their organization. But they also have to lead themselves. And oftentimes, I think this is where leaders break down. And I always say to people, look, if you haven't got time to take care of yourself, make sure you schedule time to be ill because it's going to happen. And oh, by the way, for a CEO, it's going to happen at the worst possible time. So you have to take care of yourself. And uh, Kearney, which is a very famous consulting corporation, they did a study one time in the last couple of years, and they said the biggest weakness in corporate structures in America is the failure to create a succession plan. Because if you talk to the average CEO, does he or she spend a great deal of time thinking about the succession plan? Of course they don't, because they don't want to be succeeded. It's really a board responsibility, but the organization has to do it. Well, the military as a culture, we have one advantage now over corporate America. And that is in the military, we all know what the succession is. And it goes by your rank and your data rank. So if this guy disappears, the next guy moves up and everybody understands that, everybody buys into it. There's no question. There's no time break. Boom. That's what just happens. The Union Army on day 
one at Gettysburg, due to the arrival of troops and officers being killed, will go through five CEOs on one day. There are five different generals who are in command at any given moment on the field in a single day. But that culture allows them to make that transition. Another study I saw looked at what happens to corporations when the CEO has a major personal issue. He or she had divorce major illness, a loss of a child, et cetera, et cetera. What happens? Well, not surprisingly, corporate profits in the succeeding quarter drop. And that's part and parcel of I'm not caring for myself and I'm not caring for my organization. And so the leader also needs to be self-aware of himself in terms of doing this for the long haul, but also needs to know I need to care for my team. And oh, by the way, these two things I believe intersect. If the leader takes care of himself or herself, then they're indirectly giving permission for everybody else to do so as well, so we can sustain over time at a maximum level. The future of work is here and boy, it's full of buzzwords for job seekers. Gig economy, micro learning, the fourth industrial revolution. What does it even mean? That's what I want to know. That's why my friend Mary Ellen Slater and I are holding the Shift Career Summit on June 17th. We're bringing together some of the biggest names in the world of work, such as Lindsay Pollock, Minda Hartz, Neil Irwin, and so many other great thinkers who are helping people like you take control of your career. This isn't another boring webinar. When we put together the lineup of the all-stars who are going to help you work at the intersection of purpose and meaning, Mary Ellen and I had one rule, no scrubs. The Shift Career Summit is completely free and you can register today at shiftdigitalcareers.com. That's shiftdigitalcareers.com and I'll look forward to seeing you on June 17th. You know, Jeff, you're touching on something that's been so important to me in my own career, which is self-leadership. You know, we do focus on executive leaders, executive leadership teams. It's super important. But there's something American about this idea that we are all leaders, no matter where we are on the corporate org chart, no matter where we are within the army. And your story about that one individual who took initiative was just such a beautiful example of self-leadership. So can you talk a little bit about that and what role self-leadership and that concept played in terms of Gettysburg? Well, you know, I always say if you can't lead yourself, you can't lead anybody else. And the key to being a good leader to begin with is to being a good follower. And frankly, when I taught at the Naval Academy, I had the chair of leadership at the Naval Academy, and I taught at West Point, and we taught leadership courses for cadets or midshipmen who are going to be career military officers. We start with, how do you take care of yourself, and how are you a good follower? And then we move up from there. Wait, wait. I want to I wanna touch on that for a second, because to be a good leader, you have to be a good follower. What does that really mean? You have to take orders, but you also have to be willing to lead your boss and develop a relationship whereby you can tell your boss those things that he or she really needs to know. This takes a certain amount of moral courage. There's no two ways. But it also requires that the boss is open to that because if you're not, then you can get yourself in a position where only good news arrives. I think I touched on the book, but one film I kind of like is a film called Smartest Guys in the Room. It's all about the collapse of Enron. And if you look at the collapse of Enron and Smartest Guys in the Room, what you find is the late Ken Lay. And of course, he passed away. He was never convicted for what happened. But in essence, to summarize this real quickly, but I recommend listeners to watch it, Lay had allowed himself to get into a bubble 
that only good news got to him. And we all know, and I certainly saw it in the Pentagon, as we used to say, if you shoot the messenger, guess what? Only good messengers will show up. And so the leader has got to create a climate, but the followers got to be willing to have the moral courage to do that. In the Army, we start out by telling cadets, here's how you need to think about your responsibilities. Mission comes first, the men come second, and me comes third. And so I always say to senior leaders as well, to help your followers, you've got to talk about what's the mission and vision of the organization. Because if you don't talk about it, pardon me, who the hell is going to talk about it? Don't expect this brand new employee. So when you're talking to them about it, what you want them to understand is no matter what they're doing, do they understand how they can talk about what they're doing and how that contributes to what the overall mission and vision of the organization is? You know, Jeff, one of the things you touched upon earlier is the fact that many of us know Gettysburg through the speech. So can you talk a little bit about the speech and its importance? First of all, I ask people when they come, hey, if you were Abraham Lincoln, would you have gone to give a speech? Let's review the bidding quickly. One, he gets an invitation about 10 days before the actual event, which is kind of late for a president. Two, the war is still going on. He's kind of busy. Three, a political opponent is actually the principal speaker, and he got his invitation in September, and Lincoln is asked to make a few appropriate remarks. You're not even the keynote speaker. Oh, by the way, your wife is on your case. She doesn't want you to go. Why? Well, people forget the Lincolns had lost a child in February of 1862. Willie had died in the White House of a fever. So they had lost a child. Pretty traumatic. In November of 1863, the remaining son at home, Tad, was very ill. Mrs. Lincoln feared that child would die too. So she begs Lincoln not to go. So first of all, why does he go? Well, he goes, I think, for two reasons. Reason number one, he understands the three laws of politics, and those are get elected, get reelected, don't forget rules one and two, and the stakeholders for him are going to be there. All of the senators from the, the North are going to be there. All the governors are going to be there. All the major newspapers are going to cover this particular event. So if I've got something to say, this is a great time to say it. So that's why he, in fact, goes. He goes up to the cemetery around middle of the day to deliver the speech. Principal speaker is a guy named Edward Everett. Everett will speak for two hours. This was typical in the 19th century for a great oration. It's typical for anybody who just likes to hear himself speak and has a stage. So, wow, two hours. Whew. Two hours. I've read it. Okay, but not inspiring. Lincoln will stand up and he will speak. 272 words. It takes two and a half minutes to say the Gettysburg Address. There is one photograph of Lincoln, we believe, at Gettysburg. He is seated. People go, well, why didn't the guy get a picture of him standing? Nobody told the photographer it's only going to be two minutes. He's still messing with the camera. Okay. But Lincoln gives the Gettysburg Address. And really, any leader, any leader for any organization can use the outline of the Gettysburg Address to talk to his or her organization because it's broken down into three parts. Where have we been as an organization? Where are we right now and where are we going? Where have we been four score and seven years ago? What does that take you to? It takes you to 1776 and the signing of the Declaration of Independence, which he thought was the foundation of the democracy. We hold these truths to be self-evident. All men and women, of course, are created equal. Where are we right now? We are met on a great battlefield of this war. It is right and proper. We should be here. Where are we going? We're going to a new birth of freedom. Up to that point, the purpose, the vision for the war, if you were in the North, was to preserve the Union. That's what Lincoln talks about in his first inaugural. The Emancipation Proclamation 
Constitution does end slavery in the states under rebellion. If you were a slave in Maryland, you were a slave in Kentucky, you were a slave in Missouri, Delaware, too bad. And oh, by the way, when a state in the South was no longer under rebellion under that document, you get your slaves back because you're not under rebellion anymore. So he gives a speech of a new birth of freedom. And what he's basically saying here is, hey, let me revise the vision and everybody's watching. Yes, it's still about preserving the union, but ending slavery now is inextricably linked. These two things are linked together, and that's how we're going to proceed for our vision for the future. And he will run in 1864 with a plank on the Republican Party of ending slavery, which is widely opposed even in his own party as a political loser. So as people arrive, I like to say 15,000 people arrived to hear the Gettysburg Address. When they walked into the cemetery that afternoon, the vision for the war was preserve the Union. When they walked out of the cemetery, we've now changed the vision, expanded on the vision. It's now preserving the Union and ending slavery. So I know many of us link the Civil War in Gettysburg to Ken Burns. So I know you want to speak about that. So tell us a little bit about how that's linked in your mind. Well, Ken Burns is just a master storyteller. And so it's linked in two ways. One is, to be expansive for a second, you and I could have sat here and had a wonderful conversation. So we could have stuck with concepts and we could have had a marvelous time, but the audience would have been bored to tears. But if you link a concept with a story, it has a certain stickiness about it. And that's where Ken Burns comes in as a master storyteller. Burns also said when he did the Civil War documentary series that he did, he said, what you have to understand if you're an American is everything that preceded the Civil War led to the Civil War and everything that came after the Civil War was a consequence of the war. And if you think about many of the issues that we're dealing with right now in the United States, with a substantial portion of a population, let's be honest, concerned about social justice issues, this is a derivative of our history of the American Civil War. Meryl Streep said she was fascinated by Burns' series, watched it with her kids when it came out in the 90s. And she said, you know, what, what Burns did and what we try to do with Battle Tested is similar. She said, you know, I'm an actor. That's what I do. And as I play a role, oftentimes I'm in many ways, I think, giving a voice to the dead because I may be in a play that was written by Shakespeare or Chekhov or some other playwright that's long since dead. I'm giving a voice to the dead. She said, that's what Ken Burns did with his documentary. And in a way, that's what we're trying to do with Battle Tested. Well, I love this conversation. I mean, we could nerd out on leadership ideas all day long, but I'd much rather talk about the Civil War in Gettysburg. As we wrap up the conversation, let's leave our listeners with some key takeaways from the book that you want them to know and maybe where they can find the book as well. Well, the book available, of course, in uh, major bookstores, Barnes & Noble's like, obviously available on Amazon. If you uh, go to my website, uh, www.diamond6, spelled out six, leadership.com, you'll find further information. And if you buy a copy and you send us a note that you've purchased one, I'll even mail you an autographed book plate. As far as major insights from the book, there's a whole ton. I guess some of the ones I like to talk about a lot are, first of all, that there's a difference between leadership and management. And these two things are distinct. There's a Venn diagram. We spend some time talking about the difference between leadership and management and how that's illustrated in the battle. Second of all, we talk about fundamentally what do leaders do that nobody else gets to do. And at the end of the day, leaders get to decide and they get to decide when they're going to decide. So back again, they're managers of the clock. And thirdly, and some might find this odd, even in the Battle of Gettysburg, and there are a number of illustrations, to me, the fundamental building block of leadership is ethics and character, because people will not follow somebody for a stained period of time. You cannot 
establish trust between a leader and a follower if they don't think you're a person of ethics or character and integrity, because they'll know what you're all about is what's best for you. And if something goes wrong, you're probably going to throw me under the bus. So the ethics, character, and integrity being a fundamental aspect of leadership. And then we like to talk about the role of initiative. And we touched on that, the role of innovation, which is key in organizations. They are somewhat different as well. We talk about the difference between authority and responsibility. And we like to also point out that leaders have to accept responsibility for their actions. Think your team does not come up to perfection. You got to be the one who stands up and says, right, we didn't hit our goals. I'm the person in charge. I'm going to fix this but I accept the responsibility. I don't immediately start throwing people under the bus because if I do that, we're not going to succeed over time. And then lastly, that whole idea of effective communications and how it's up to a leader to constantly communicate a vision to his or her organization and bring people on board about what we're all about and what we're trying to accomplish. Such good stuff. I'm excited to introduce the audience to your book. We're big fans of great storytellers. Clearly, you are the Ken Burns of my podcast today. So thank you so much. We'll include all of your links in the show notes. And thanks for being a guest and making us a little smarter today. Hey, Lori, it's a great honor and pleasure. Hey, everybody, I hope you enjoyed this episode of Punk Rock HR. As always, the show notes are where it's at for information, links, resources, and you can find them all at lorirudiman.com forward slash podcast. And don't forget, this episode of Punk Rock HR was sponsored by the Shift Career Summit. That's right, happening on June 17th. It is the place to go to hear from all the experts, no scrubs, to help you take control of your career. Head on over to shiftdigitalcareers.com for more information. That's shiftdigitalcareers.com. And thanks again for listening to this episode of Punk Rock HR. We'll see you next time. <laughs>